five time, five time, five time, five time, five time, WW champion. Pretty weird thing to brag about, actually. Managed to get five podcasts in a row. Hi, I'm Jim. I'm here again. And you know what? The um, I'm still not satisfied with the audio. I think last week's was again quieter. So I'm still figuring this out. Appreciate you bearing with me. But we have a rather large amount of wrestling to get into. I don't know if there's any MMA on this one. I'm sure there probably is in there somewhere. But what we're going to start with is, of course, the end of the G1. And I'm going to mix it up a bit here. I'm not going to do it in order because that would be silly. We're going to get all of this G1 stuff done first because I feel like it's uh, been a, a an age since I watched a G1 match. So we begin, it was Friday night the 16th in Ryugoku, Sumo Hall, and it was the final night of the A block. So, well, we'll get this one out of the way first. So the C block was uh, Yodosuji and Gabriel Kidd. As a solid match. Yoda wins with a Boston Crab. Backstage, Kidd's devastated. And Suji says he will let the fans judge if he has improved over the course of this tour. He points out that during this tour, he has been Tanahashi's assistant, and he proposes that they team up for the World Tag League, which I would like to see. Anyway, A Block. Going into this one, the final night, Kota Ibushi, Jay White, and Kazuchika Okada are all 6-2, and two, all on 12 points, all in the running to win. Um, and Osprey also... Apparently has a chance as well. He's 5-3 and three on 10 points. Uh, Osprey needs to beat Okada and hope Ibushi and White lose. But he's still lost to Ibushi, so I don't know how he can win. So... I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure the stats I got were right. Oh, I should mention, probably. These aren't my rankings. We know by now I can't do them. I knew going in I can't do them. I've accepted that. I got these from elsewhere. And I cross-checked them. So I'm pretty sure they're correct. But again, I'm still the one cross-checking. I, I can't emphasize enough how poor I am at doing these points, these rankings. I always lose it. But on the show, they... On, on New Japan, they said Osprey's got a chance. So I'm... I'm guessing they've done the math. Uh, anyway. So, Okada would definitely win if he beats Osprey and the other two lose. But he needs that because he lost to both Jay White and Coda. Did Okada. Jay White has the advantage because he beat Okada and Kota, so Ibushi needs to win and hope that Jay loses if Ibushi is to win the block. Um, the rest of the rankings, there's Taichi and Jeff Cobb, both 4 and 4 on 8 points. 
Takagi, Ishii, and Suzuki are all on six points at three wins and five losses. And Yujiro Takahashi is on zero and eight for the big donut. No points. Okay. So, our first match on the final card for the A Block 2020, Jeff Cobb versus Yujiro Takahashi. Pretty run-of-the-mill match until Yujiro decides to make his move. He shoves the referee into Cobb, who knocks him down. Yujiro grabs the pimp cane and cracks Cobb with it, Kelly remarking that it's the first time he's done so. Of course, English commentary live on all three of these last three big G1 shows. So I listened to English commentary for all of it. Yeah, Kelly said that's the first time he's used a weapon. And, um... So I, you know, that's cool. I mean, if nothing else, it was quick. Yujiro hit him, he chucked the cane away, and uh, went straight back to wrestling, having the advantage. He uh, hits an Olympic slam, he hits a Miami shine, that can't keep Cobb down. But then he hits Pimp Juice, the DDT. And... He pins Cobb. Yujiro picks up a win at the death. So the cheating paid off, but um, you know what? Given his good attitude and mostly good behavior during the tournament, it's still something of a feel-good moment. So, uh, yeah, Cobb's disappointed backstage, but he doesn't make any excuses. Yujiro talks about how he thinks this win will really help his chances of entering the G1 next year. Can't hurt actually pick up a win. Um, Shingo Takagi versus Minoru Suzuki. Suzuki's on top for a lot of the match. The Gotch-style pile driver is counted into a DVD. Death Valley driver for the uninitiated. Suzuki rips on a Fujiwara armbar. A sleep hold looks like it's about to send Shingo into La La Land, but when Suzuki tries to knock him out, Shingo counters with a big elbow, stunning Suzuki. Last of the Dragon quickly follows, and that picks up the win for Shingo. This was a good match, but I feel like they're saving their best for the inevitable openweight title match that would follow this. Suzuki's a bit punch drunk, uh, punch drunk rather. Backstage, he is asking who his next G1 opponent's going to be as he stumbles around. And Shingo is not satisfied with this victory, so I'm sure they're going to set... Well, I know now that they're going to set something up. Um, ba -ba -ba -ba. Kazuchiko Kata versus Will Ospreay. This is a really good match, and they, they don't wait around either. They get straight into it. It's all action from the first bell. Ospreay hits Okada's dropkick to the top turnbuckle, sending Okada tumbling outside. And then he flips over the top turnbuckle to the outside. So from inside the ring, flips over the turnbuckle to the outside, landing on Okada. Uh, apparently a move in dedication to the late Ryan Smile, who um, I believe took his own life, unfortunately. Uh, he was a UK wrestler. I think they were a tag team, actually, him and Osprey. Sometimes. Back in the ring, the counters are flying. There's a Rainmaker as a counter to the Stormbreaker. Okada hits the drop kick and the tombstone, then locks in the money clip, but Osprey makes it to the ropes. Okada gets it back on a little later for a lot longer, 
but help arrives in the form of B. Priestley, who was identified by Kelly as Osprey's girlfriend. At first she just cheers him on, but then she gets into the ring to provide a referee distraction, and a man enters from the other side. He's wearing a grey suit, he's got a black beard, a buzzed head, but for a long plaited black tail. His heavily taped right hand clasps Okada's face, lifting him up and slamming him down. The camera's able to get a better shot of his face when he leaves, and it's the great Okan, otherwise known as Tomoyuki Oka, who is clearly back from his UK excursion, where he has evidently made some new friends. Osprey seems confused by all of this at first, but he goes with it. He finishes Okada with the Stormbreaker, he wins the match, He's got a confused smile for Okan and then exits toward Priestley, who kisses him and then tells him to go back in and finish Okada off. So suddenly, Osprey's fully on board with this. He hits the hidden blade. He gives the finger to the back of Okada's unconscious head, screaming, fuck you and you held me back. All three of them exit together, Okan, Osprey, Priestley. And Osprey has clearly turned heel. Has Osprey's been setting me up? Like, have I been worked this whole time? He was just... I wanted him... I wanted to like him when he came back. Do you remember? Were you listening? I wanted to like him when he first came back at the start of this G1. And ever since, I have just... These podcasts are evidence of just progressively getting just more and more hate piling on Osprey. And here he is turning heel. Maybe, maybe I influenced New Japan. Maybe they listened to this and they thought, you know what, he's right. This guy is a cockhead. Let's turn him heel. Now, I think I'm just a mark. Okay, so Osprey won... And uh, backstage he says this was a long time coming because he's been living in Okada's shadow despite being just as good. He introduces the undefeated, the dominator, the great Okan. He keeps it short. Uh, He just says that his time for domination's here. And then Osprey introduces B. He puts over all of her accomplishments. He officially retracts himself from chaos and says he'll be building his own faction. So, that's quite an angle uh, here, and we're not even at the main event yet. So the next match, Kota Ibushi versus Taichi. We know now that um, Okada's out of the running. I mean, again, if you know how the G1 works, you already knew that, because he's not in the main event. But... Yeah, this happens every year, folks. But, um, yeah, and as far as I'm concerned, Osprey was out anyway. So, and I mean, look, it's not going to be... Even if I've got it wrong, and Osprey would win, if Ibushi and White lose, like, why would that... Why would that happen? Get real, people. You know they organize this stuff before the match, right? Okay. Ibushi versus Taichi is the next match. It starts innocently enough. Taichi cops a kick to the back. 
Ibushi sits down, Shibata style, showing he can take it better than Taichi can. But then in a surprising move, Taichi returns the favour after his kick, so he's clearly got something to prove. He sits down and cops another kick from Ibushi. So that's surprising. But then it just seems that neither is able to convince the other that one is tougher than the other because this becomes the whole match. I mean, they move on to leg kicks at one point, but the whole match is these two taking turns at kicking each other. I mean, that's not exactly the entire match, but that's pretty much the whole match is them kicking each other. Similar to, it's comparable to um, Sasaki and Kabashi, the chops, the chop, the back and forth chops. Um, but just with kicks instead. Ibushi tried to cut it short with a Kamigoye, but Taichi dodges it, and the grueling battle continues until finally Taichi collapses after more kicks, and Ibushi makes it... Oh, he makes sure of it with a, an executioner's head kick first, but then he follows that with the Kamigoye for good measure. Ibushi wins, keeps himself in the running for the final... And backstage, Taichi is helped to the back. He lies down on the floor. He can't even tell what's hurting right now, is what he says. Um, he thinks Ibushi is insane, and then he drags himself out. Ibushi says he'll, make, he'll watch the main event, and um, that will, of course, seal his G1 fate, and he hobbles out too. So that leaves it all up to the main event. Tomohiro Ishii versus Jay White. If Jay White wins... He wins the block, he goes to the final. If Ishii wins, Ibushi wins the block and goes to the final. So, White does his usual time-wasting or baiting, and eventually it works. And um, even as he attacks Ishii, Ishii asks for more. So Ishii has his own way of baiting Jay. Um, and Jay begins to target the knee of Ishii and thus begins some of the best selling you're going to see in wrestling, by the way, from Ishii. This is a masterclass. Jay's reverse figure four leg lock, uh, which he originally called the TTO, Tanahashi tap out. Well, then I think he changed it though. He would just call it like whoever he tapped it out with, like Naito tap out or whatever. Um, but... Yeah, he he locks that onto Ishii, and he's got it in for a long time. Ishii's really hurting, but uh, Ishii eventually makes it to the ropes. Ishii counters a Blade Runner with a Dragon Screw, and then it looked like he was going for a Kiwi Crusher for added insult, but he hurts his knee. So Ishii targets the knee of White, but every move of his own reminds him that his knee is busted. There's a knee bar from Ishii, which has White in trouble, so he pulls down the referee. Gato makes his way into the ring. Ishii intercepts him, and then after a three-way scuff scuffle, Ishii comes out on top, removing Gato, hitting a German suplex, and a sliding lariat on White. Gato provides another distraction, though, and White reverses the momentum with a low blow. A very attractive regalplex from White goes close to a victory, but Ishii headbutts his way out of a follow-up. A couple of sleeper suplexes, and then a Blade Runner attempt. Counted into a Brain Buster. Counted back, and counted again, and again, 
and finally Ishii drops White into a stunner that lands. Gator runs back in as Ishii slaps at his knee but gets dropped straight away. White gets the same lariat treatment but then Ishii gets him up for the brain buster. The crowd gasp, it lands, the crowd can't believe it. Ishii makes the cover and wins the match. Jay just lies there, flat, twitching a little bit, his eyes glazed over. This was a, an incredible match. Ishii's selling of the knee is as good as it gets. The result, of course, means Ibushi wins A block. He advances to the G1 final for a record-breaking third time in a row. But what a match this was. One of the best of the tournament. Uh, and Ishii doesn't stick around for comment, which is normal. But also, it's kind of Ibushi's moment anyway. Gato paces back and forth in frustration around the ring, coming to terms with his plans being ruined while White sits himself up in the corner and stares at Gato and the scene looks set for an angle, but they leave together, nothing happens. Gato blames the referee. Backstage, White resents that a chair is ready for him, which of course, every time he comes backstage, he asks where the chair is. This time he's like, oh, really? You think I need a chair because my knee's hurt? So, um, he sarcastically offers Evil his support in his B-block match tomorrow, but uh, is otherwise pretty filthy. Ibushi's interviewed again now, now that he's had his uh, place confirmed in the final. He says he will win the G1 again and become God. He talks about not giving up. He doesn't mind who wins tomorrow and is ready for whoever the finalist may be. So, the final A-block standings are Koto Ibushi, 7-2, 14 points. Jay White, 6-3, 12 points. Kazuchika Okada, 6-3, 12 points. Will Ospreay, 6-3, 12 points. Taichi and Jeff Cobb and Takagi and Ishii all on... They just went uh, negative. Four wins, five losses, eight points. Minoru Suzuki finished 3-6 and six on six points. And Takahashi... Still on the bottom, but off the mark. One and eight, two points. So let's go straight on to the next night, the final block. Final night of B block, rather. Again, of course, in Rio Goku. The final C block match was Gabriel Kidd versus Yuya Yumura. There's an intense stare down before the bell. Rocky says Finley's trophy for the winner has not yet arrived, which is the height of unprofessionalism. There's a nice drop kick from Kid that sets up the butterfly suplex, and that is what wins it. So the commentators add up the totals, and Suji still takes it. Suji is the C block champion. These two evenly tied in second place. Yoda's at ringside and either doesn't know this, doesn't care, or doesn't sell it because he doesn't react at all. Yuya is frustrated, which aligns with his assertion that he hates losing more than the other two. But Kid picks up the last win of the C block. Yuamura recalls saying that he was going to show off something extra during this tour, and although he doesn't think most people would have noticed it, he believes he has had a successful tour, that it's gained a lot of confidence, and uh, though he is disappointed with the bad note to finish on, 
Gabriel Kidd says the tour has been bittersweet. He feels he represented the LA Dojo well. He praises Uemura and the rest of his class as one of the most talented Young Lions classes in years, calling them the future of the company. Now, B-Block. Going into this final night, we have Tetsuya Naito and Evil tied at the top on 12 points, although... Oh, well... I think, um... Did Evil beat... No, yeah, Evil beat Naito. So Evil's actually kind of on top in terms of head-to-head. The other guy still at it is Sonata, who's on 10 points. Zack Sabre Jr.'s also on 10 points, but he's out because... While he beat Evil, he lost to Naito, who's already on 12 points, so the best he can do is second. Which is... See, on New Japan TV, they, or, you know, on the show, they, because that, that's the same situation that Osprey was in. But on the show, they, they, they said that Osprey's still in it, and they didn't say that Zack Sabre Jr.'s still in it. So I don't know how that, I don't know what the difference is. If you're listening to this and you know, feel free to comment and let me know what I've missed here. Once again, math is not my strong suit. So, it's between Naito, Evil, and Sonata. Uh, Sonata also beat Naito, so he has that advantage. He also has the advantage of the fact that tonight he faces Evil, so he has the opportunity to be tied for points at the top and have wins over both of the people he's tied with. So he's no, you can't say he's in the driver's seat, because if Naito wins, then he tops the group. Um, and if Evil then wins, he would win on head-to-head. But we know Naito's not going to win, because he's not in the last match. <laughs> Spoilers! But that's the G1. Anyway, let's get into it. Toriyano versus Yoshihashi is the opener. For some reason, neither of these men are in the running. I just realized that Yano has that spray bottle as a replacement for spraying water out of his mouth. Or did he have that... No, I don't think he did. Did he have that before? I can't remember now. I mean, it's been most of the year. It's hard to believe, but this coronavirus thing, is that's happened in... That was like February it started affecting these shows. So it's been like the whole year has been... Not in reference to it, but... I mean, Yano references to it. I think that's what the spray bottle's about. But, you know, my memory's shot. Who knows? I thought that's what... I I saw that and I was like, Ah, that's what he's doing! It's the mouth thing, because he can't spray water out of his mouth. Yeah, anyway, that's important. Important news. Important uh, observation. Yoshi tapes Yano's arm to his staff between the barricade. Now, obviously, Yano has not paid attention to how his opponents have dealt with this, because instead of Yano just turning the staff and pulling it through the gaps in the barricade, he squeezes himself through the barricade to the other side, has to run around, and just makes it back into the ring. But it's pretty funny. Yoshi dodges a donkey kick, then considers a low blow of his own, but the referee gets between them 
Yano pushes down the referee, but Yoshi catches his low blow, uses the arm to cradle up, and win by pinfall. Yoshihashi with another win. He has more belts in his future plans, is what he says backstage. Yano is unhappy with the way his G1 ended. Juice Robinson versus Hiroki Goto. Juice goes for the hurting shoulder of Goto, but uh, Goto's tough enough to fight through it. And Ushigaroshi knocks the spit out of Juice. There's a big left hand that knocks down Goto twice. The second is followed by a rubbish pulp friction. Goto kind of backed out of it. It looked like he could have counted it, but he goes down anyway, and Juice gets the win. These two end with eight points apiece. Backstage, Goto reflects on a difficult tournament, and despite his lack of success, he thinks it was one of his stronger efforts. The fire will keep burning, he says. And good news, Juice is back. Hasn't been doing a, all his promos lately. He calls this the biggest tournament on earth. He's disappointed he didn't hit his goal of 10 points. He throws in a few Japanese words that the translation doesn't pick up, but his... Well, disappointment is basically his sentiment. I don't know if he was out the whole time, but uh, Hiromo's at ringside for commentary, so it's nice to see him. He might have just popped out there after the break. The little uh, clean clean-up break. Hiroshi Tanahashi versus Zack Sabre Jr. is the next one. This is a match I've seen a hundred times. It's something you've kind of got to be in the mood for, you know? And it's... Yeah, it's harder to be in the mood when you kind of beat down with all these matches over and over. At least that's, you know, that's for me. Because um, this in a vacuum, uh, I would often very much appreciate. But uh, basic notes here. Lackluster Sling Blade sets up a high fly flow crossbody, which Zack rolls through into an armbar attempt. But Tanahashi follows him over, stacks him up for the pinfall victory. Tanahashi holds him down well after the three count to make a point, I guess. So Zack is naturally unhappy, responds by continuing the fight, requiring young lines to separate them. Tanahashi watches on as Sabre throws a bit of a tantrum. Backstage, the tantrum continues. Zack says, How many lives does Tanahashi have? How isn't he broken? How did he win? Suffice to say, he's unhappy with the result. Tanahashi admits Zack has more speed, more stamina, even more sharpness, but what Tanahashi has is weight. Of all the things Tanahashi could brag about, he brags about his weight. Tanahashi reminds us that though the weight classes have become more ambiguous in recent times, if Zack weighed as much as he does, he would have reversed that pin. So, <laughs> And then Tanahashi brags that he pinned him for a five count, so... He's not necessarily said there that he only won because he was bigger. He was more... It actually came off as more of a shot at Zack. Like, if you had some meat in your bones, kid, you might have actually pulled something off there. But no. Okay. The semi-final match. Tetsuya Naito versus Kenta. It is not long before Naito's noggin meets Kenta's case. The referee doesn't see it, of course. Naito counters the GTS with a poison runner, but lands on his own head harder than Kenta does. Classic Naito. 
The Boo Psycho Knee connects, but Naito kicks out and then shuffles himself out of another GTS. Kenta goes for it again, and at this point the GTS is so telegraphed that Naito escapes the third time, and then on a fourth attempt, Naito turns it into a half-destino. Kenta, counter, Kenta counters another destino, but eats a Valencia. Naito goes for the destino again, and this time the counter is a cradle, which pins Naito. I haven't seen Naito like this, at least not for a long time. He's beside himself with grief over this result. It means he's out of the running, uh, and of all people, to his rival from the beginning of the year. Kenneth sticks his tongue out, rubs it in, because it appears uh, he'll get another shot at the, the double title now, I suppose. So that's three title belts that he's in line for. US, Intercontinental, and the heavyweight title. Things are coming up, Kenta. And uh, backstage, in true Fast and the Furious spirit, Naito says he may as well have finished with zero wins because it doesn't matter whether you win by an inch or a mile. He doesn't actually reference <laughs> Fast and the Furious, I am. Um, uh, but yeah, that's bas that was uh, basically what he said. Uh, he brings up the final match, but he doesn't offer any support for either of the competitors. Um, of course, this is speaking of Sonata versus Evil. You'd think he'd have a favourite in that one, but... He doesn't talk about it. He's just disappointed with his own performance. Kenta looks up from the floor at his favorite camera person and recalls an exchange between them nearly a year ago, like a complete psycho stalker. But uh, that love affair continues for now. For now. And the final match to determine. This is winner take all. It's the very last block match of the 2020 G1 Climax, G1 Climax 30, and it is that symbol. The, w the winner goes to the final between Sonata and Evil. So they obviously know each other very well. Evil tries to spring his finish early on, but to no avail. So he tried to wrestle. That was his attempt, and the chairs come out, because it didn't work. Evil suplexes Sonata onto a pile of chairs as the referee chats to Togo. Hiromu no-sells Evil. Uh, evil tries to intimidate him because, of course, as I said, Hiromu's sitting at the commentary table, so Evil tries to get a rise out of him, but nothing happening. Evil chats to the referee as Togo puts the boots to Sonata. At least I'm um, assuming Evil did the referee that courtesy. Um, didn't see it. It doesn't matter either way. Sonata gets him back by slapping on the Paradise Lock. He gets it on Togo. Evil embarrassingly runs into the same hold. And the commentators argue that he shouldn't kick Togo. Sonata should leave him tied up, which absolutely makes sense, but he can't help himself. He kicks them both. Sonata locks in the Skull End and Evil fades, but the subsequent Moonsault misses at the 15-minute mark. You know, I heard something interesting about the Skull End that changes things a little. It's supposed to be a neck crank. It's not supposed to be a dragon sleeper. Now, that's fine. I'm fine with that. But why do they go to sleep? From a neck crank. That's the problem. You're sending the wrong message. If they just tapped out from it and it's a neck crank, that's fine. He just needs something else to set up the moonsault. 
instead of knocking them out with a neck crank and then going for the moonsault. Do the TKO and then go for the moonsault. Or, you know, transition. Yeah, he's got to do something else out of that. I'm fine with Dragon Sleeper being a neck crank and people not passing out from it and him setting up the moonsault a different way. That could be a big change for him. I just, I don't know if he can go back on it now because everyone's been, because then now, like, oh, why is no one, he's going to have to change it because then everyone's just going to ask why he's not knocking people out with it anymore. Or maybe everyone would just accept it because it's like, well, this is better. Let's just pretend it never happened the other way. I don't know. Anyway, so, um, Sonata has a skull in end, a skull end in evil fades but the subsequent moonsault misses and that's at about the 15 minute mark the scorpion deathlock forces sonata to dig deep and he kicks out of the subsequent darkness falls sonata counters the sto with a tko he latches the skull end back on and again evil passes out sonata goes for the moonsault and hits it to the back then shoves evil over hits it again to the chest but before the referee can finish his count Togo drags him out of the ring. Togo darts around the ring. He surprises Sonata with a chair, stabbing him in the midsection. He waits for Evil to get up and then helps him hit a magic killer, albeit kind of badly. Hiromu has seen enough. He runs in to attack Togo, knocking him down with a kick, but then he gets low blowed by Evil. The pair hits another magic killer on Hiromu this time before sliding him out and sliding the referee back in. Sonata nearly rolls Evil up, but cops a couple of lariats after that doesn't work. Sonata counters the STO, so Evil grabs the referee and backs Sonata against the ropes where Togo is waiting with his choking cord. Hiromu makes a save, and Sonata rolls Evil back into a pin to win the match, pop the crowd, and I have to admit, I'm no huge fan of Sonata, but I pop for him winning too, so... Maybe I was right about being worked by evil. The announcer confirms the results and Sonata has a little wink to the camera as he confirms that uh, Sonata's going through to the final. And Kevin Kelly astutely points out how handsome the final will be between Sonata and Ibushi and I couldn't agree more. So uh, Sonata takes the mic. The fans already have their lights up before Sonata begins talking. He motions to have the lights turned down. He thanks all the fans. He says tomorrow he etches his name in G1 Climax history. And backstage he says he will become the hope of the pro wrestling world. So the final B block standings are Sonata, 6 and 3, 12 points. Ahead of Naito and Evil, also 6 and 3 on 12 points, but he beat them both. Zack Sabre Jr. and Kenta had 10 points, going positive at 5 and 4. Hiroki Goto and Hiroshi Tanahashi and Juice Robinson go slightly negative, 8 points, 4 and 5. Toru Yano won 6 points, and Yoshihashi, second place overall, or sorry, second last overall, second place in my heart. No, he's first. Uh, he went 2 and 7, he's got 4 points. Overall, of course, I mean he beat Yujiro, so quite a feat. Now, let's find the final. Here it is. 
Here it is, G1 Climax 30, the finals. Ryogoku Kokujikan. I never say the second word because I don't know if I'm saying it right. Sumo Hill's a lot easier. We had really just a bunch of matches and then the final, but we'll go through them. We're having fun, why not? we got some time. Oh jeez, we're already this far in. There's a lot more to get through. Bear with me. Just looking at the time. Um, Yanu Yoshi, Ishii and Goto versus Duki, Despi, Zack Sabre Jr. and Taichi. Chaos versus Suzuki-gun. Zack and Taichi combined for a Black Mephisto. What do they call that? Super Black Mephisto? Something. And, um, yeah, they hit that on Yoshi before throwing Duki on top of them. Doki? Duki? Whatever. Dopey. Uh, so that adds insult to injury. Dookie grabs the trio's titles, holds them high, physically issuing his challenge as his teammates continue their chaos assault. So, Jan is very upset, uh, upset backstage. He offers Zack a shot at his King of Pro Wrestling title in order to punish him. The winners enter together, congratulating Dookie, who unironically accepts their praise. Despi asks... What did he actually do? And Dookie's like, I'm not really sure. Ishii is nearby and they get into a fight in the hall. Dookie hits Ishii with, uh, to his knee with a pipe. Of course, Ishii's knee being sore from his last match uh, before this one. Taichi says that he will finish Ishii. They walk back to the press area and Dookie's just full of confidence. He says... Yoshi is terrible for losing to someone that hasn't wrestled for a month. Despi points out that Yoshi beats Sonata. So Taichi, he does the math. He's like, shouldn't that mean that Dookie's in the final? Having beaten the guy that beat a finalist? But I'm pretty sure Taichi's joking. Uh, that doesn't stop Dookie ranting on about how he will beat Yoshi for his title. Taichi comments that Dookie barely had anything to do with the win at all. Despi asks him again, what did you actually do? in the match, and Dookie once again responds, I'm not really sure. Taiji still backs him up, says they will take the tag titles, the trio's titles rather, with Dookie, uh, and Zack's there, but he's clearly having trouble following what's going on. These guys are hilarious though. Suzuki Gun guys are some of the greatest backstage promo guys. Taiji in particular is incredible. Hiromu and Shingo versus Kanemaru and Suzuki is the second match. Suzuki and Shingo take up a lot of the match to continue their feud, but Hiromu dodges the whiskey bottle to finish Kanemaru with the time bomb and win the match. Meanwhile, Suzuki and Shingo need to be separated. At the same time, Hiromu holds up his gold to the face of Kanemaru ahead of his uh, well, ahead of the best of Super Juniors. So. Yeah, Hiromu got the win over Kanemaru. Uh, Suzuki tells Shingo that if he wants the title to come and get it, Suzuki selects him as the challenger and will destroy him more than last time. Shingo says Suzuki is acting like he didn't just beat him. He requests a match from New Japan for the title. Shingo says that the title is a waste with Suzuki, that he will make it matter and he will fight for it at any time. Hiromu is looking forward to the best of Super Juniors, but before he wants a title, another title. 
No, wait. Oh, that's what happened. No, I'm losing track. We haven't really seen the juniors for a long time. Uh, Hiromu's not the champion. What's his name is? Um, bump, 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 bump. Bone Skull. Skull Bone. Big Dog. Skull Soldier. Bone Soldier. Yeah, Bone Soldier. That's the one. Uh, Ishimori. He's the champ, isn't he? So, oh, so what um, Hiromi was holding up was Kanemori's tag title, the junior tag title. So, Hiromu wants to challenge Kanemaru and Despi, it would be, for the tag titles with Bushi. He wants gold before the best of Super Juniors. So, I imagine that'll headline one of the Road 2 shows. Wato, Cobb, Juice, and Tanahashi versus Gato, Ishimori, there he is, Kenta, and White. So, Gato taps to the Texas Cloverleaf. Um, Tanahashi appears to challenge Tent Kenta. He challenges John Tenta for his U.S. Sh uh, the, well, the briefcase, the contract. Um, if I, I did a poor job of saying that, I might try again. So, Tanahashi challenging Kenta for the U.S. title contract. Backstage, Ishimori addresses the fight at the top of Bullet Club. He's confused by the squabble, wants everyone to get along, but has enjoyed Kenta's promos. And then he asks who the fat one is, and that poor guy's got to obviously raises his hand because Ishimori's like, oh, yeah, it's you. Oh, you are fat. Oh, jeez, poor guy. Um, hope he's got a lot of self-confidence because he needed it going into this G1. White hugs the woman that brings him chairs and then tells her to go away. He admits it was not the J1 after all and blames Red Shoes and New Japan, then talks about going after a title. Kenta sees his least favourite fatty and blames him for the loss. Another camera actually shows the guy. Kenta points out that he, the, the, the fat, I just have to call him that so you know what I'm talking about, the fat cameraman has a Yoshihashi towel, so Kenta asks him to leave, and then he starts talking to a different camera, which is wielded by his favourite, more slimmer cameraman. He tells the cameraman he loves him, he asks for reciprocation, which happens. The cameraman says, I love you back. What's that? Aishimas. Um, and then Kenta's just disgusted by his voice. He says he sounds like an old man, so now he doesn't like either of them. But he says that together they've put on a good show that the fans have appreciated. So he, um, I don't know, gives them that at least. Wato is pumped up for the best of Super Juniors. He says he's coming after Rishimori's title. Tenzan backs him up. Then Tenzan says he hopes he can be in the tag league, but he's not sure if he uh, is in it or not yet. Tanahashi confirms he would like to, to challenge Kenta for the US title contract. He hears Kenta yell in his press conference and says that's satisfying to hear but little does he know Kenta hasn't said a word about the loss or Tanahashi and is only interested in the people behind the cameras it's just him yelling at the cameraman um, but this actually was interesting because I'd always wondered how the press area worked backstage so now I know they've obviously got two press areas presumably for heels and baby faces um, and oddly, again, everyone in this match spoke, except Juice. Next up, they have an announcement. Wrestle Kingdom will once again take place over two days. The 4th and the 5th of January. 
Chris Charlton's asked what this might mean for international fans, and of course, he has no answers. But if they're going to let anyone in, they would let us here in Australia in, I reckon. Because, well, no one from Melbourne, they're not doing so well. They're ruining it for everyone. But the rest of us are virus-free. That'd be cool. Who knows? All right. Um, next one. Show and Okada versus Okan and Osprey. They changed... O- I noticed they changed Okan's name. It's... um, Because before it was O apostrophe K-H-A-R-N. I don't know if that was... No, I don't think it was translation error because I'm pretty sure that's how it was spelled in Rev Pro. But now it's just... It's O dash... K-H-A-N, Okan. Just a bit simplified, I guess. Uh, anyway, Okan comes out to Osprey's music in a fancy red and gold Chinese robe, and from his gold hat hangs a towel covering his face with a question mark over it. I saw someone reference to this. It's a traditional Chinese outfit. It's They continually reference Genghis Khan throughout the match, so obviously it's that's his gimmick. It's something to do with that. Uh, Osprey's tweaked his look as well, though. He's uh, gotten rid of all the feathers and fur and the extra bullshit on his coat. So it's a simpler, cleaner look, and it looks a lot better, I think. B. Parisi walks out with him in her ring gear with the SWA title over her shoulder. Okada doesn't wait to take his gear off. He runs straight at Osprey, begins the match. Osprey makes show, tap with a figure four leg lock, though, at the end, and... Priestley involved herself with a dragon screw on the apron that set that finish up. Meanwhile, Okan slams Okada the same way he did the night before. He's not a huge, he's not a small guy, but he's not a real big guy, that Okan. I guess there's not really anyone that much bigger than Okada, though. He might, he might struggle to do that move to Cobb, but... Yeah, it's kind of a big man move. The Well, the idea that you can pick someone up by their face is definitely a big man move. Um, so, I know, I was just thinking if he should maybe have a... If, you know, if you can do... You know, you want to finish that you can do to everyone. But, no, it's it looks pretty good. And uh, Khan's kind of reminded me of Evil, actually. But the way he's dressed up makes him a bit of a cross between... Goto and Evil, who already look similar. Um, all kind of us, yeah, yeah, similar body shape, similar style. Good, Goto, good and evil, Goto, and no, that, there's nothing there. Okay, uh, Osprey says Akada has to go through Khan before he will accept his challenge, and then he dubs his new group the Empire. And there you go. So I guess we'll have to see if anyone else is. Looking to join the Empire. I'm sure they got more than just the three of them. Priestley, I don't think it's going to be there all the time because she's with Stardom. So I imagine they would run shows on similar nights. Or, you know, I don't think she's going to be there all the time. Next match, Bushi and Naito versus Yujiro and Evil. Evil makes Bushi tap out with the Scorpion Deathlock and then doesn't release it until Naito makes him. Togo chokes Naito from behind and Evil hits everything is evil to leave him laying. Naito says to everyone that beat him in the G1, they have the right to challenge for his titles. And he will leave the rest to New Japan to work out, but he does 
ask that evil contact, the chairman, about taking a, getting a shot or, you know, being given a shot at the title. So, roundabout way of saying he wants to fight evil. And evil definitely wants to make that challenge. Now, before the main event, Masahiro Chono comes out. Unfortunately, we can't hear his theme song because it's, uh, you know, for the licensing reasons. And maybe also because it might offend some new viewers, uh, the way it starts. But um, he says the final will be great, but the world has been struggling with the pandemic. He praises New Japan for showing courage and a way forward. Thank you, Chono. G1 Climax 30 Final. Sonata versus Kota Ibushi. Ibushi has his left leg bandaged up, of course, from the brutal Tai Chi match, but it takes Sonata 10-odd minutes to figure out that he should make use of it. Ibushi runs under a dropkick, and Sonata's arm lands down on his head. It didn't look that bad, but... Ibushi rolls out of the ring and holds his head, and he's got a concerned look on his face. Maybe that's real. Maybe he thought it might have looked like it was worth selling. But it was an error either way, and he's reacting strongly to blows to the head from that point. Sonata does his pescado and uh, you know, the jump over the top rope and elbows Ibushi in the head again. They both miss top turnbuckle dives, but Sonata lands on his feet, they start throwing elbows... And Sonata goes low to the leg, gets to the skull end, but Ibushi fights out. Ibushi counters the springboard dropkick into a powerbomb, but collapses, unable to capitalize. Sonata goes to the leg again to counter the Kamigoye. TKO doesn't land right, that's the second kind of main botch in this match. Uh, Ibushi goes for the skull end, which is the quickest way to get yourself skull ended. And uh, that's what happens, with the body lock included, or body triangle. Ibushi goes to sleep, but Red Shoes lets it continue, of course. And see, now that's Red Shoes. The same referee that calls off every Okada match without checking for the arm a second time. Red Shoes just over and over again will check this arm, but because it's Sonata, no one goes out. It's a Red Shoes robbery. He's caught red-shoed. He's been caught red-footed. Anyway. Sonata misses the moonsault. Ibushi hits the bomb-a-a. Sonata counters the Kamigoye into a pop-up TKO. He goes for the moonsault again and hits it to the back. Goes up again, but Ibushi gets his knees up. The crowd aren't super hot for this, by the way. They go back to the skull end counters. Ibushi hits the bastard driver. But Sonata kicks out. The Kamigoye is counted into the backslide. And then another pin. And then another. The uh, Japanese leg roll clutch goes as close to a pinfall as pins go. And the crowd buy that one. There's a flying knee from Ibushi. The Kamigoye hits. But Sonata kicks out. Only for Ibushi to hit the Kamigoye again. And win it there. It was a good match. But I mean... Just It was kind of just the match you'd expect between them, except they did all their moves and kicked out of a finish or two. But it was good. So, Ibushi is your G1 Climax 30 winner. 
He recognises that with this win, he joins Chono and Tenzan as G1 winners twice in a row. He says he will soon be the IWGP Heavyweight Champion. Uh, backstage, he is still really pushing this catchphrase. He's been saying it all, I'll, I'll read it out here, because he's been saying this over and over. I won't run away. I won't lose. I won't quit. I won't betray you. That's his deal. There you go. Jay White interrupts the press conference. He grabs a chair. He sits down. Coda gives him a bottle of Zima and then gives him an aggressive cheers and then takes a big swig in a way you know he's done a thousand times before. So I bet Ibushi parties hard. Like he necks it. Like he mo- half the bottle's in his mouth when he just like throws it back. Actually quite um, dangerous for his teeth, I imagine. Because I think that's a glass bottle. Ibushi's told by the... Anyway, Jay pisses off. Ibushi's told by the... Oh, no, wait. Before that, though, uh, Jay says Kodo never beat him and he'll be taking that briefcase. So, obviously, Jay wants a shot. Which is obvious because, yeah, Kodo's the winner. Jay nearly won. And Jay had a win over Ibushi. So, yeah, of course, that's... um. That's the, the, the logical next challenge, I would imagine. The the defense of Ibushi's briefcase. Uh, Ibushi's told it was the longest G1 final ever. I think it was only just over... It was like 35 minutes. He's asked about Sonata, and... Ibushi seems to suggest that he should be a good guy. If I understand correctly. So I don't know if that's foreshadowing for Sonata leaving LIJ... He said he became a fan again when Chono handed him the trophy. He says winning the heavyweight title means everything to him. He thanked all the wrestlers, all the fans. There you have it. G1 is over. But there's so much still going on. Let's uh, go back here. Let's We'll do the rest in order of uh, when it occurred, roughly. So... What would be the next thing here? A block. Oh, there's the Ring of Honor show. Ring of Honor. Last week, Lethal advanced to the semifinals with his win over Finley. Lethal said post-match that he's confident of meeting his partner Jonathan Gresham in the final. Gresham defeated Seidel with an awkward knee twist after a surfboard. He comments afterwards that this tournament has meant to showcase, or was meant to showcase, how different the Ring of Honor Pure guys were from everyone else. That's what I thought too. But I haven't seen that much of it. There's been... I don't know. It's been kind of 50-50. There's been some good like technical kind of matches and there's also just been some wrestling matches. Uh, then he calls Seidel a bigger part of a problem for Ring of Honor and once again, I am on the same page. He says, or he asks, why is a high flyer in this tournament? And he says that Ring of Honor needs to return to its roots... Uh, Gresham isn't the greatest promo ever, but I like what he's saying. And then they replay this dope from last week that got attacked by Matt Taven. First match on this show, though, Fred Yehi versus Tracy Williams. This was good, really technical. Uh, they mix it up with a few explosions of energy between holds, though. Yehi picks up a knock to the leg. He does a cool little sequence with a, a foot stomp and then a quick takedown and then a boot. It's not really realistic, but he made it look cool. 
They both use up their rope breaks pretty quickly, but Yehai's lucky to have one left when a pile driver lands and all he can do is get his foot on the rope. Williams locks in a crossface and Caprice Coleman's line of the week is, he has a really strong face. <laughs> I don't even really know what that means. Yehai pulls himself up on the ropes, which of course doesn't break the hold. He has no rope breaks left, but Williams transitions locking in a standing dragon sleeper between the ropes to win the match that way. So, yeah, this is more like it. This was a good match. Between matches, EC3 walks out in his street clothes, well, wrestler street clothes. His promo sounds like a TED talk. You can tell he really practiced it, but it's not bad. It's actually pretty good. I mean, he basically just says he's here to win wrestling matches, but he says it in a really fancy way. The cameras follow him backstage, and Shane Taylor heard his words and takes umbrage. Dem boys, the Briscoes, move in, and Taylor fires up at them as well. Everyone forgets about EC3 for a moment. He just stands in the background until the Briscoes invite him, without asking, into a three-on-three tag against Taylor and his boys. So... I get that it would have to be next week. Maybe they're dragging out the semi-finals and just doing one semi-final next week, one semi-final the following week. I don't know. But the final quarter-final, which, by the way, again, they call this a semi-final of the block. That's not how... Like, it's a knockout tournament. There's no blocks. It's a quarter-final. Josh Woods, PJ Black. So, Silas Young, mentor of Woods, walks him to the ring. Black brings his doofus that he's mentoring, Brian Johnson. Uh, this one starts out a bit slower than the last one, but not in a bad way. It's, it's pretty technical. Uh, until Woods just decides to dump Black out of the ring. Uh, but that it doesn't last too long. They get back in the ring. Black uses two of his rope breaks shortly thereafter, like within 30 seconds of that, of each other. Uh, Woods has a submission that looks like it isn't on yet. Like he's crossing Black's legs in like, almost like a figure four kind of hole, but he just kind of holds him there. Fortunately, he decides to switch to an arm with the more classical kind of holds. Until then, he tries to hook an arm around his leg or something ridiculous like that and loses it. I think he'd... I mean, because he's supposed to be a shooter, I think he'd be a lot better if he just stuck to the basics. And then once again, Woods has a heel hook, but then he, instead of just finishing that, he goes for this inverted figure four, which I guess is his wrestling finish. And in fairness, that ends up winning him the match by submission. And he does that one. He does it better that time. But, I mean, I don't know. I remember seeing this in his first match as well. And it looked like rubbish against Kenny King. But it looked fine here at the finish, at least. So that's the Ring of Honor show next week. Um, well, yeah, I don't know how they'll do it now, but the semi-finals will be Lethal versus Williams and Gresham versus Woods. Oh, we didn't get away for long, did we? More New Japan. Here's the strong show. So they're now... A, this is now the Never Tour. So the the way they... Like, the, the Never um, font is the same as... The never, you know, open weight titles. But they don't really 
the only explanation we get for the theme or like the direction of the tour is that it's to do with junior heavyweights competing with heavyweights. Um, but I mean, that sounds kind of, I mean, I don't think that's really that different from what they've been doing, but it sounds cool in terms of that being a direction for the never open weight championship, because I really dislike this idea of just like a floating mid-card title that represents little more than being the best average guy. I mean, that's not a thing. Championships should be at the top of divisions, and the wrestlers should be divided for a reason. So weight class is an obvious reason. Another reason would be style, which is what the Never title was for a few years there. They had uh, Goto... Honma, Shibata, Ishii, Suzuki, um, Makabe was a part of it, Nagata was a part of it. Those guys were like, they were having these awesome fighting spirit style matches and like with a few of them, maybe a bit of shoot style thrown in. And so that title at that time, it didn't necessarily represent the best wrestler, but it definitely could have represented the toughest wrestler. And that's a division. That's, that's, you know, that's something to prove. That's some that's someone may want to prove themselves the toughest wrestler, and in order to do that, they enter that division, and in order to prove that, they win that championship. That's a division, that's a championship, that's what it should be. So um and I mean I would love for it to still be that, but I don't think they really have the bodies to make that work currently with guys in that style. Like Shingo would work, and of course Ishii's still there, Suzuki's still there for the time being. Although he's not looking like slowing down. He was one of the best guys in the G1. But, um, yeah. I mean, look, if this is the direction, the open weight means juniors versus heavyweights, I think this can work too. Because New Japan's historically been pretty steadfast in keeping juniors and heavyweights separate. So the Never title could be a useful bridge for juniors that want to move up. Now, I would like the idea that they just promote the juniors on par with the heavyweights as, um, you know, as like the UFC or boxing would do, but that's just not how they do things. So I think what, I think as openweight champion, they would be, they would need to be in consideration for major tournaments, regardless of their weight. So you know, like the top guys don't need to go after that title because they'll be drafted into those tournaments regardless. So either it's heavyweights that are just under that who might want uh, to turn their attention to this title to make sure they get entry into those big tournaments. Or, of course, for the juniors, they are rarely selected for those tournaments. So what I'm talking about, of course, is G1, uh, New Japan Cup, stuff like this, if they're champions, then of course they're going to be selected in these tournaments. And I have to imagine that, um, well, of course, winning the tournament itself is its own glory, but, you know, just competing in it, I'm sure, comes with a bigger paycheck. So, um, let alone winning it. And additionally, what it could represent to the fans is a different style of match. Remember in the 90s, they would do different style matches with... Um, uh, 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 oh my gosh, how am I missing his name? I'm seeing his face. 
Shinya Hashimoto. I mean, that was like the shoot style matches, but this is a different style match in that we don't really get to see the juniors versus heavyweights much, so it's kind of that quick, everlasting junior facing the strong and damaging heavyweight, and that's a fun dynamic in pro wrestling that we don't see a lot of in New Japan, so I think um, to the fans, the openweight title can represent that, but in kayfabe to the wrestlers, it can also represent its own um, prize and, and, and usefulness and and yeah be that's what you need it to be you need a championship to be a prize you need it to be something sought after um because something like well i mean like mid-card titles in wwe for example they're, they're just kind of there as a prop to give a reason for a feud um, and I'm not saying I'm, I'm definitely not saying New Japan's immune from that, and that's why they really need to make use of this title. Oh, actually, I'm I'm calling it the U.S. title in um, I'm you know I'm calling out WWE's U.S. title. What about the U.S. title in New Japan? I mean, that's kind of their. I mean, it makes sense that they're branching into a United States territory, but. Is that really a division yet? Like, do they really have a division for that? Is it really worthy of having a championship for? Um, That's a different story. So, anyway, that's quite a tangent. We were going to talk about New Japan Strong. Um, And we do start off with a heavyweight versus a junior. It's Danny Limelight versus Mysterioso. Mysterioso being the heavyweight. And he... Leans on Limelight at first, but then shows off his own agility as well. He catches Limelight's Pescado and rams him into the post on the outside. Kozlov speaks some Russian during this match. His commentary would genuinely be better if he spoke Russian the entire time. And no, I don't speak Russian. That's the point. Uh, Limelight makes his comeback with some flying moves, some quick dodges and some hard kicks, but makes the error of trying to lift... The bigger man, so Mysterio, Mysterioso, makes him pay with a backbaker. I think he called it the MSO, and he wins by pinfall. Next match is Hikaleo versus TJP. The commentators have been really putting over how big and dangerous Hikaleo is. Um, realistically, TJP probably does feel in danger wrestling this big green goof because, I mean, he wants to make himself look good. He is a really big guy, and TJB, I mean, TJP is half the size of him, so, you know, and he's, yeah, he's green as grass, so he's a bad botch waiting to happen, but TJP is experienced enough to maneuver around that, and he tries some things in this match that won't work, because he just can't reach all of the, you know, he, I think he tried like an SDF at one point, and he hooks up the legs, and then he goes to try and get Hikalo's face, and he can't reach him, so he ends up just trying to pull on his hair for a minute. Um, and yeah, he uh, he hits some. He, he starts to use the ring a bit more. That's what helps TJP. He hits some DDTs by jumping up on the ropes and closing the distance that way. Hikaleo eventually strings together a comeback that was pretty much brought about by just being too big for TJP rather than him really doing anything to shift the momentum. But he wins it with his finisher, the Gunslinger, which I've said before, we'll say again, looks terrible. 
I would have just given him like a Uranagi or something. I don't know why he has to do this spinning bullshit. Uh, he keeps his promo short. That's good. We also had Alex Zane versus PJ Black. Oh, and this is just a couple medium-sized guys. And they decide to do an interpretive dance together that happens to occur in a wrestling ring. I hated this. <laughs> I hate it. This is one of the fakest, danciest matches I've seen for a while. Kozlov calls a sunset flip innovative. It's just adding to the match. Black hits a Styles Clash on his way to a crucifix driver that he calls the bad habit and wins the match like that. Just not my style of match, if I was to put it a nicer way. Kenta and Chase Owens versus Jeff Cobb and David Finley is the final match on the card. Kenta pulls a Rick Rude on Raw here. He's got his mop of blonde streaked hair when we just saw him in the G1 with a fresh cut. My goodness. What a uh, fourth wall... No, that's not fourth wall breaking, is it? It's time travel, that's what it is. Actually, this was taped so long ago that Jeff Cobb's beard isn't grey yet. Um, again, oh, I don't even... Kozlov, Kozlov suffers greatly from just explaining everything he sees, which is what everyone else can see as well, rather than adding to the picture with what a move might mean, or what it takes to complete, or what it takes out of you, or some kind of relatable comparison. He's fucking terrible. Uh, but anyway, yeah, okay, so there was a match, and Cobb beats Chase with the tour. That was it. Alright. Oh, you know what? I don't know if there's any MMA, but I do have some boxing here. There was some bog... Oh, I didn't watch it again, but... I thought it was worth mentioning, because... This was, uh... It was on ESPN. It wasn't on pay-per-view. From the MGM Grand Conference Center. Not the arena. Because no one can go. Uh, Lomachenko. He was the ring lightweight champion. The WBO lightweight champion. And the... WBA super lightweight champion. And those titles were on the line against Lopez who had the IBF lightweight title. And in an upset, Lopez extends his win streak to 16 and takes Loma's three titles with him. So, apparently it wasn't like a barn burner, but it might be a bit of a passing of the guard, which is why I thought it was notable, because Lopez is only 23 years old and, um, yeah, pretty highly touted and beating the long-feared Loma is um and I mean Lomachenko's only thirty two, so not exactly out of his prime years necessarily. Um Yeah, but it, look, I mean it's boxing, I'm sure there'll be a rematch and who knows how that'll go, but there you have it. It was a by decision, I believe. Unanimous decision, which is also a little bit um surprising. Usually the I mean boxing's a little bit Shady, some might say, for judges' decisions seeming to go the way of who might make more money for the promotion. But, uh, yeah, that was that one. Let's move ahead again. We've already... Oh, no, there was a UFC. Well, let's stick with the real stuff then, huh? Fight Island 6 on ESPN+. Plus. We had, at welterweight, Claudio Silva 
versus James Krause. Krause is on a six-fight win streak before he took a fight at middleweight earlier this year, but his return to welterweight was successful with a unanimous decision over Silva. He admits an inside leg kick really damaged his knee, and his fitness is not where he wanted it to be. He also hates the island, especially the sleep schedule, and wants to get off it. And might I add, what a handsome fella Krause is. Light heavyweight, Jimmy Crute, Aussie boy, versus Modestas Bukoskas, who could be Australian as well, and just from Melbourne. Uh, Crute, I don't think he is though. Crute cracks him three times in a row in the first couple of minutes, absolutely demolishing Bukoskas. By the way, I mentioned Melbourne earlier for their um, COVID thing. That's nothing. That's not a COVID reference. That's a um, European expat in Melbourne reference. If you've never been to Melbourne, there's. I'm sure Bukaskas has family in Melbourne. Just put it that way. Right hand dropped him. Um, so the right hand of Krut dropped Bus Bukaskas, and then a right uppercut when he rose back up. And then that set up a left hook that finished it. So yeah, like I said, just demolished this guy. Crute jumped out of the cage, got some words of encouragement from Dana White at ringside. Crute tells DC that he nearly walked off after the first punch, but he's glad he didn't. And then he calls out Nikita Krylov, who's a top 10 guy. So Jimmy Crute, in and out quick with his priorities straight. Nice one. Uh, women's flyweight, Caitlin Chukagian versus Jessica Andrade. 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 It's spelled the same way as Andrade, but it's Andrade. At the end of the first round, Andrade lands a slam and some ground and pound, but Chukagian gets back to her feet. When they break, however, Andrade lands a punch to the solar plexus, and Chukagian wheels back in pain. With only seconds in the round remaining, Andrade rushed in with punches, finished the fight with another strong body punch, and Andrade, Andrade, Andrade said the body shots were part of the plan because she knew Chukagian was affected by a weight cut. This was Andrade's return to flyweight, and Chukagian was ranked number one. So a first-round finish of her likely puts her straight into a title shot against Shevchenko, the champion. Uh, which is an awesome fight that has not yet happened. Uh, first, though, um, Shevchenko's got to fight Jennifer Meyer in uh, next month, UFC 255. So I imagine that we will see Shevchenko... Oh, well, as long as I imagine Shevchenko will win. I guess, to be fair, Andrade will face the champion, whoever that may be, but... I mean, of course it's going to be Shevchenko. She's a beast. And that's a f great fight. I would be really interested in watching that. Now, the main event here... You know, I like to... I know that this is obviously primarily pro wrestling, this podcast here. But I talk about this stuff because I like it for the same reasons that I like pro wrestling. So there's a real story behind this main event. And I think if you're not a combat sports fan, you're just a pro wrestling fan, you can get into this because it has that story behind it. As long as the fight that 
follows it is still interesting. And in this case it was. But let me set it up. The fight is between Brian Ortega and Chan Sung Jung, more popularly known as the Korean Zombie. Again, pro wrestling. Uh, and this one's been a long time coming. The rivalry started when Zombie called out Ortega for a fight over social media pretty aggressively. And this was after Ortega lost his title shot to Holloway in what was a brutal fight. Ortega took a lot of punishment. Ortega's unhappy with the call-out, and he accepted the fight. He went to Korea to start promoting it. Zombie shook his hand and apologized for the posts, which Ortega accepted. As part of the promotion, they did a square-off, and there was a cute moment that uh, Ortega kind of does the thing where he pretends he's looking for something in his pockets and out of his top pocket he pulls out a little finger heart which is like a nice Korean gesture apparently Um, I'm sure popular amongst teenage girls or something it's just like your index finger and your thumb crossed together and it makes a little heart he pulls that out of his top pocket and zombie bursts out laughing they both laugh it's a nice moment and then at some point, so, you know, everything's buried. They're, they're all good, right? But at some point, Ortega found out that it was a member of Zombie's team that was doing the posts. It wasn't Zombie behind those posts in the first place. It was his translator, who is also a Korean pop star, called Jay Park. Now, this is how you integrate a celebrity into a fight or wrestling. There's no reason why pro wrestling can't do this. Jay Park probably has a lot of fans that watch this fight to see his surrogate beat up the enemy because here's what happens next. So Zombie and Ortega were meant to fight in December 2019, but Ortega pulled out of that fight with a knee injury and was replaced by the former UFC lightweight champion, Frankie Edgar, legend. And Zombie knocked him out in the first round. Then through Park's translation, Zombie said he isn't interested in Ortega anymore, he wants his title shot because he doesn't want to be ducked again. So Ortega assumes that Park was the instigator of this, and he calls him out on Instagram, he says, the next time, or he says something like, Uh, Don't be surprised if you get slapped the next time I see you. This is at Park, the translator, the pop star. So then other translators came out and defended Park, and they just said, look, it was a straight translation. He didn't add anything, but Ortega doesn't care. In March at UFC 248, he sees Park, and um, uh, it was in the audience, and he made good on his promise, slapped him across the face. I don't think Zombie was there with him at the time, but Zombie lashed out on social media, and now we are thinking it's probably him doing it. He basically demands a fight in revenge for his friend, and here we are. So, can you see how, I mean, you know, WWE, I'll use WWE just because they're the ones with actual access to celebrities, I suppose AEW as well, but you just see a lot that, like, I don't know, the 
the celebrities tend to get involved in a real gimmicky way. Like, you know, maybe they'll wrestle the match and they'll do a move or two and it's like, oh my God, you know, he embarrassed the Miz or whatever. Or they'll just be like pretending someone's their favorite and it's like a nobody and it, I don't know, they just have some like little gimmicky thing they do at ringside or something. In this sense, all, all that really Park had to do was get slapped. And it sets all of this, or it's, you know, uh, an important moment, an angle, if you will, in this rivalry. It just, it's so simple, but it works so well. And, um, yeah, it, it, I bet it got a bunch of Park's friends, or fans, to watch this fight. Like, oh, I want to see that bully that um, slapped my favorite pop star... Want to see him get his ass beat? Let's go Korean Zombie. So here it is. Featherweight bout. Brian Ortega versus Chan Sung Jung. Zombie enters to the song of the same name by the Cranberries, which has endeared him to the fans in the West, as well as ex- exciting brand of fighting. Winning fight bonuses for fun. And he's currently ranked at four at Featherweight. So a big win here almost definitely secures him a title shot. And this guy's a huge potential He's got huge potential as a star. Ortega has shaved his head and donated the hair to a charity, showing he isn't just a K-pop bully, and he's ranked number two at featherweight. They hesitantly touch gloves before the fight, and it's uh, cautious and pretty even first round. They both land strikes. Until there's about a minute left, Ortega connects with a short right and then knocks him down with a left, Although Zombie pops straight back up, but that took the round for Ortega. First takedown attempt by Ortega in the second is well defended by Zombie. A nice uppercut snaps Ortega's head back, but they both land in punches. Ortega with more kicks. Zombie overextends on a punch, and Ortega knocks him down again with a spinning back elbow. They scrap back and forth before Ortega earns a takedown. He doesn't have much time to do much with it, but it's another clear round for Ortega due to the knockdown. The threat of the takedown is proving a useful tool for Ortega. The third fight, sorry, round, starts cautiously, again, but it remains intense. Both guys could finish the fight within within an instant. Neither would back down from a firefight. A single leg attempt is not completed, but Ortega lands a couple of good punches as a result of it anyway. Zombie comes forward more aggressively in the fourth round, likely knowing he probably needs to finish at this stage to win. Big left hands for Ortega, but Zombie, true to his moniker, doesn't react. Another takedown takes Zombie to the fence, and a big punch at the end of it opens up the left eye. Another big punch lands, and the referee stops it for the doctor to take a look, uh, but he gives the okay. The round continues. A replay shows a cut happened before the punch, so it actually may have been a clash of heads. Uh, Zombie offers little in return. It's going into the fifth without any doubt that he needs a a finish to win the match. Zombie does come forward, but it's Ortega's jab that's landing most, and the external blood flow from the eye is increasing on Zombie. DC raises the interesting idea that Zombie might need the crowd to spur him on. In contrast to a Justin Gaethje, who DC thinks was better 
and more composed without the the fans. Like the fans got him too excited and it ruined him. He's saying Zombie maybe needs the fans to get him psyched up because he he isn't really going for it, but he's also just being controlled. Like this is a great performance from Ortega. Um, and yeah, the fight basically ends the way it started. So it it was really good, but a bit anticlimactic. Uh, but they hug and they show respect to each other after the fight. The decision's obvious, but it's made official. Ortega thanks the fans that stuck with him, but to those that counted him out, he says, learn to count, motherfuckers. Not a bad line. He tries to walk off, but DC still has that wrestling with him, and he hooks him back in. He tried to just walk off with that line. No, get back here. So uh, Ortega says that he wanted to reinvent himself for this comeback. DC says White has already given him the title shot against Volkanovski. Just made it on the spot. And Ortega doesn't flinch. He's happy to take it. At the uh, press conference, which was a bit lackluster because only Andrade and Ortega showed up. But Ortega says Volk is very methodical, but he will brush up on him before their fight. And he's another guy that's not a big fan of the island. He believes he'll face Zombie again in the future. He says he studied Zombie and the fight went exactly the plan. He said he plays Call of Duty to 5am anyway, so fighting at this time suits him fine. Um, He says another fight with Holloway would look very different. He's a different fighter. And uh, he's certain that he's going to grow back his hair, despite the benefits of having it short. Okay, we're nearly at one point, one and a half hours here. Um, so let's wrap it up. There was the Road 2 Power Struggle show as well, but we can cover that next week. Um, that was last night, Friday night. I didn't do the date at the start of this show. Well, hopefully you read it on wherever this is posted. But, uh, for the rest of the week, W-E-A-K, week, Leon Edwards has been removed from the UFC rankings for inactivity, because he's reported to have turned down fights with Woodley, Usman, Covington, Neil, and Chimaev. Which is like, except for Chimaev, like Neil, well, Neil's a bit further down, but Woodley, Usman, Covington, that's like the top three. So I don't know what his deal is. And maybe this is another case of Dana White smearing a fighter, and we are only hearing the promoter's side of the story, but I don't know. People are turning on him pretty quick. We uh, had the Power Struggle card announced for the 7th of November, two weeks from today. So, Naito versus Evil will headline the Power Struggle for both titles. Ibushi will defend his Wrestle Kingdom briefcase against Jay White. Kenta defends the US briefcase against Tanahashi. Okan faces Okada. And for the Never title, Suzuki defends against Shingo. And there's... I guess the openers uh Zack Sabre Jr. Oh, right. Zack Sabre Jr. and Yano for the uh, King of Pro Wrestling title. So, title in every match. Wow, what a card. There you go. Now, I heard something about Omega as well. Kenny Omega may or may not have turned heel. Um, but uh, but whatever they're doing, they sounds like they're doing something, so I checked it out. I found a clip of it. Justin Roberts reads off a long list of accomplishments, some very real, some in wrestling. Some just ridiculous. A couple of pretty ladies come out dancing with brooms in reference to his cleaner character from New Japan. He faces Sunny Kiss in what was apparently some kind of a tournament match and he 
just hits a flying knee straight away, one wing angel, bang, wins the match. And just while he's sitting there hooked in the pen, he's just got this bored look on his face, staring into space like it was all just too easy, which it should be. I mean, Omega should be, that should be an easy match for him, Sonny Kiss, with all respect. Um, But I think the way he went about it uh, was probably pretty heelish. And then I didn't really see much of else of it. Uh, but I know Omega works well as a heel. He's a good, smarmy, kind of dorky, easy to get annoyed by kind of guy. So, um, yeah, that might be that might be interesting. Will I follow it? Maybe loosely. Yeah. Oh, and before we go, this is exciting. Gleet. No, not Gleet. It's a uh, Gleet. G L E A T. This is a new promotion in Japan. So they just put on one show so far. It's uh, It happened on the 15th of October. It aired apparently on the 22nd of October, so I'm still trying to find footage of that. But I did find their YouTube page, which is just Glate, G-L-E-A-T, official YouTube. If you want to look that up, give that a follow. On there I found a video by Josh Barnett. He sent in a video saying that he'll be there soon to keep the... UWF Spirit Alive. So, this promotion was founded by uh, Kiyoshi Tamura, who was UWF I fighter in the 90s. But um, when New Japan absorbed UWF I, Tamura went to Rings instead. And that was around the time when Rings was starting to become a shoot promotion rather than a shoot style promotion. But Tamura had some shoot fights along the way, so he could hold his own all right. Um, but yeah, he's definitely one of the um, shoot-style guys of that era. Uh, yeah, and, and competed in mixed martial arts as well. So, Glate, I it's hard to... I mean, I think that's a Japanese thing. They've just... Because I read something that it was great, and then the L is for something in particular. So they think if you just put L in there, it, instead of it being great, it would be Glate. It's not how English works, but... So every time I see it, I see Gleet. Which reminds me of Bleat, like Bleat like a goat. Which reminds me of Osprey, which gets me mad! Not really. Um, But Glate, it'll take a while to get uh, used to that name, but yeah, supposed to be a shoot-style promotion, so that's my deal. Keeping a keen eye out for what they're doing. Uh, They have Ricky Choshu on board as well, so he might be the head booker. That might be cool. Um, and now, I, again, I didn't get to see anything, but I've got their debut card here. They had Kez Hayashi beating Nasawa in UWF rules, is what it's called. Uh, Masakatsu Fanaki, the founder of UWFI. Um, no, sorry, founder of Pancrase. Um, but also very much shoot style guy, right? He was a, a part of the original. Was it the, the original UWF or maybe the second UWF? And he was a part of um, uh, progressing Gumi Fujiwara. But yeah, definitely a name in that space anyway. Minoru Tanaka was on his team and they defeated uh, Okubo and Takanori Ito. Uh, again, a UWF rules match was Suri beating Yu by referee's decision. And then we had 
Kino versus uh, beating Juan Tanabe, Fujita, Kendo Kashin, oh, see, these are names I know, Segura, Takashi Segura versus Daisuke Sakamoto, Jin Akiyama, Jun Akiyama, and uh, Taniguchi in the main event. So, um, yeah, Fujita, of course, he's classic. Fujita and Kashin, there's a couple of uh, Inoki's boys, and Segura as well as um, one of those guys that a shoot style guy who was part of that era or that kind of early New Japan era as well. Um, but yes, so I'm, I probably got some of those names wrong because I'm not familiar with all of them except kind of the older guys that I know. But um, the reports I did read were that the only shoot style matches were the ones that were UWF rules and the rest were just kind of standard pro wrestling. But it was a well-received match, or sorry, a well-received card and... I'm really looking forward to what they do next. But I've got to wrap it up there. And um, I'm sure whatever I didn't... I don't think I missed anything except for that Power Struggle card, but there'll be more to get into next week. Until then, have a good one.